This episode of Outlines contains sexual content and graphic description of crime scenes, so listener discretion is advised. Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now, and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure but in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accents and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Welcome to Season 2 of Outlines. This is Episode 1, and it's a little different from normal. I spoke a while ago about collaborating with Paul from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and this is that episode. Today I'll be outlining the 1974 murder of Josephine Bakshul, and then you'll have to listen to Paul's episode to find out what happened and for theories. Before I get started, though, I'd like to say thank you to all those who have taken the time to listen to the previous season, and who have left comments and ratings on iTunes and other podcast providers. Every review you leave is helpful for the show, so please, if you can spare a minute, I'd really appreciate it. And if you'd like to spare more than a minute, then you can become a patron of the show. I can't even tell you how excited I was to find someone had pledged, and even more so to see that it was Lisa Cummings, who's one half of the very dark, funny and feminist podcast Two Macabre Ladies. Thank you, Lisa, for your pledge, and also for teaching me the virtue of Cat Jail and NBC's Dateline. Also, thank you to Karen Klooster, who became a patron just yesterday. I've noticed Karen speaking highly of outlines on social media over the past few months, and I'm so happy to receive her support. If you want to join Lisa and Karen, then for escalating perks like early bonus episode access and videos of the places mentioned in the podcast, you can give as little as $2 a month towards helping to finance my research and compulsion to visit the scenes of the crimes I speak about. I'll put the link in the description box, as well as all my other contact details. But for now, let's get on with the case, because this is a particularly unusual one. Summed up very simply in the title of a small chapter from an old book the true crime enthusiast sent over. The book was called The World's Greatest Unsolved Crimes, and the title was Advertisement of Death. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. Josephine's case is a good introduction to season two of Outlines, because it straddles last series County of Essex, and ends in Hertfordshire, which will be the focus for the next shows. Hertfordshire is large, 
landlocked, and has a population of over 1.2 million people as of 2013. The further south you go, down towards London, the more densely inhabited it becomes. But we're staying northeast, just west of the Essex border. Much of Hertfordshire is agricultural land, protected by Greenbelt to stop expansion, and towns aren't as close together in the north of the county. And there are still plenty of small, old villages with their share of thatched cottages, and names like Cradle End, Little Haddam, or Berry Green. It's here, in Berry Green, on a road referred to as Lover's Lane, that two post office engineers working on remote telephone lines made a terrible discovery around midday on the 1st of November 1974. They found the body of 39-year-old Josephine Backshall. Her shoulder bag was half-submerged beside her where she lay, fully dressed but face down in a shallow pond, having been strangled with a length of cord which remained around her neck. That same cord was also tightly around her wrists, which were tied in front of her, and she was wearing a watch which had stopped at 8.10. I'll let Paul talk about that in his episode, and about the reasons why her hands might have been bound forwards. For us, though, we need to be keeping with the facts, and stepping back in time, to February of 1974, and a small advertisement placed in the Malden and Burnham Standard. It's a grey and drizzly day in what has turned out to be a cold March when Gemma and I visit the Essex Records office in Chelmsford. It's a dingy building, which I'd call brutalist if I were being generous, and accessible from the car park via a river path. Not a pretty one, but the kind with litter and discarded clothing. It's the first time either of us have been to the office, and it's a little daunting. You have to wait in the holding area while they make you up a card and then leave all your bags and coats in a locker before they release the door and you can finally enter. When we're in, I ask to see the Malden and Burnham Standard from 1974 and early 1975, and I'm told it will be 20 minutes or so to fetch them up from the archives, which seems excessive to bring microfilm up a few floors. But we take a seat and wait and look around. I think we look a little out of place in a study area mostly filled with beards and tweed, and I feel like the person behind the counter knows it. I'm not too bad, a few tattoos, but Gemma has thick black dreadlocks which fall just below her waist, and more than a few facial piercings. It doesn't help ingratiate us that when we do eventually receive the archives we need, they're not on microfilm at all. But instead, January to June 1974 is a large, fabric-fronted bound volume. And even worse, July to December are actual newspapers, some of them moulding in the centre and breaking apart as we open them. I suddenly understand why the person behind the desk looked so confused when I asked how to print the articles off myself. And sheepishly, I jot down the page numbers I need and return. As I wait... I wonder how often the woman doing my printing is faced with the kind of research Gemma and I are doing. Regardless, 
She does a good job of not looking disapproving, as I ask her to print article after article entitled things like Meal Puzzle in Murder Hunt and Beware of This Killer, Police Warn Women. While we need all the research, I never find the thing I'm actually looking for, which is an advert from February 1974, nestled somewhere in the Situations Wanted column of the newspaper. If we had found it that day, it would have been jammed between adverts for workers entitled things like Young Lady Wanted for Secretarial Work and Men Needed for Engineering Positions. It would have been small, submitted by Josephine Bakshall, and it would have read Lady, late 30s, seeks part-time employment, own transport, anything considered, previous experience banking, able to type, and then her phone number. It is believed that her killer found this advert and called Josephine's number, and it was this that would eventually lead to her murder. There's a newspaper article, dated the 7th of November, just six days after Josephine's body was found. Its headline reads, Murdered Woman, Just an Ordinary Housewife. That last part, a quote from a neighbour who lived near her home in quiet Norfolk Close in Malden, Essex, 35 miles away from the place where her body was found. The full quote reads, I just can't believe it can have happened. She was just a normal, everyday housewife interested in her home and family. For Josephine, family meant her husband Clifford, a mechanic who worked for Ford Motor Company in Boreham, preparing cars for rallies and autosports events, and her three children, a boy and two girls aged 12, 10 and 7 respectively. She was a regular Roman Catholic worshipper, and parish priest Conrad Smith told the papers she was a devout Catholic and came with the children every Sunday. But Mr. Bakshall didn't worship here. He is not a Catholic. Mrs. Bakshall was a very pleasant person. I am absolutely amazed at what has happened. As well as her regular church attendance, she was also a member of the choir and ran the church brownie group. She had been working for almost a year as a clerk for Malden ladder makers Stevens and Carter at their factory off of the causeway. Colleagues in the firm's sales department described her as a good worker who got on well with fellow employees. Despite the demands of her day job, raising the children, running the brownies and singing in the choir, Josephine still found the time to indulge in her hobby of Scottish country dancing. She started off dancing with the Malden Catholic Church Ladies Guild, and according to the organiser Lorna Harris, she danced beautifully. And in 1972, she also began dancing with a group in nearby Whittam, who held Wednesday dance meetings, which she regularly attended. In February 1974, for reasons which aren't entirely clear, Josephine placed her advert for part-time work in the Situations Wanted column of the Malden and Burnham Standard, and her advertisement was answered by a man who identified himself as Pete, and told her that he was a freelancer, a photographer, and was looking for a model for some advertising work. 
It is believed that in the months before her death, she met with this man in Malden and in Whittam, and there are even reports that he came to her house to photograph her in daylight on the front lawn. I briefly visit Norfolk Close, a few days after my trip to the records office, and nowadays her house looks much the same as it did then, and the lawn is paved over to make space for cars. The area she lived is still quiet, an innocuous little cul-de-sac on the outskirts of Malden in the Whittam direction. In the days before October 29th, it is reported that the man called her twice and arranged to meet, both times cancelling at the last minute. His final call came on the day of her death from a phone box in Great Totem, just a few miles from Malden. The man told her that he'd had a model cancel at the last minute and asked if she would be available to work, requesting to meet in Whittam that evening, and she agreed. It was 6.15pm when she said goodbye to her family and headed out into the night. America, sometime in the very early 1970s, an advert was placed in a number of newspapers and magazines that read, Female Sexual Fantasies Wanted by Serious Female Researcher, Anonymity Guaranteed. This ad, placed by the author Nancy Friday, would, by 1973, have turned into the book My Secret Garden, Women's Sexual Fantasies in which women's written or spoken desires are compiled into categories. Things like the thrill of the forbidden, the earth mother, pain and masochism, and the sexuality of terror. About the book, Nancy Friday said, I chose to write about women's sexual fantasies because the subject was unbroken ground, a missing piece of the puzzle at a time in history when the world was suddenly curious about sex and women's sexuality. The backdrop was a widespread belief that women do not have sexual fantasies, are by and large destitute of sexual fantasy. The book spans a vast array of stories submitted by women in America and the United Kingdom. Some are violent and non-consensual, some detail illegal acts, and some are mundane. Lillian's reads, sometimes when I'm, say, peeling potatoes, I imagine that Bill will come up behind me, bend me over and enter me, right there at the kitchen sink. Others are more detailed, like Poppy, a 32-year-old Catholic woman who tells of a recent affair with a man 11 years younger than she is, and how she imagines him spanking her for his own benefit, and that of his wife, his brothers and his father. She writes, Sometimes I'm allowed to choose someone to degrade and I always choose the father. When I read the news coverage of Josephine's case, I think immediately of My Secret Garden. Because of the wording of her advert, that part that read anything considered, it seems as if the newspapers went out of their way to stress that she did not realise how that phrasing could be misinterpreted. That she was a good, married, Catholic woman who attended church regularly. But reading Nancy Friday's book, 
you understand that what you choose to see on the surface of a person and who they are inside are not necessarily one and the same. In Paul's episode, he'll discuss this further and ask you to look at the timeline of Josephine's last known steps from some different perspectives. But for now, I'll talk you through it as it was reported and get you to head to the true crime enthusiast afterwards for alternative theories. On the evening she was killed, at around 7.15pm, an hour after she had left home, Josephine was seen standing next to her car with the bonnet up on Collingwood Road in Whittam. Collingwood Road is at most a 20-minute drive from Norfolk Close, and one of the main roads into the centre of town. As she was standing by the car, a passerby stopped and asked if she needed help, but she said no, saying that someone was already on their way. We don't know who this person was, or when they arrived, or even what was wrong with the car, maybe a light out, one paper said. But by nine o'clock, an hour and three quarters later, it was abandoned, parked in a car park on Collingwood Road, very close to where she had been seen standing. After this point, her movements become less clear, but it's thought that at around 10.30pm she and her killer visited the Fountain Pub in Good Easter, which is the other side of Chelmsford, the biggest town in proximity to Whitham. The pub is some 17 miles away from Collingwood Road, just over a half hour's drive. And if this sighting is correct, then it is the last time that anyone other than her killer saw Josephine alive. There are three hours in between Josephine's car being spotted in Whitham and she and the unknown man being seen in the fountain. In the weeks after her death, it was revealed that in her stomach were the remains of a meal she'd eaten that evening. White cabbage, baked beans, potato, bread and minced meat. But we don't know where it was consumed. In that book of Paul's, The World's Greatest Unsolved Crimes, it has a quote from Joan Jones, the publican's wife at the fountain. We're told they stopped for only one drink, half a pint of beer each, and Joan says, I only caught a fleeting glance of him. He was a tall man. His head touched a line of beer mugs hanging over the bar. He never actually seemed to face me, and on reflection, it seemed as though he was trying not to let anyone get too close a look at him. I remembered her at once. She was an attractive woman. She had sat in the corner of the bar with the man and seemed totally at ease. We aren't given the source of those comments, and again, there are some alternatives to this narrative, and I'll let Paul go through them. On the same day that we visited the records office in Chelmsford, Gemma and I drove the route to Berry Green where Josephine's body was found, via Good Easter. It's a small place, not even signposted itself, 
but instead grouped with the village of High Easter, and referred to as The Easters. The pub is not even in the village, but at the other end of Fountain Road, and Gemma and I don't find it on our drive, despite my reference photo and a lot of muddy turns in country lanes. I have to use Google Maps later to pinpoint its location, but we do find a little village hall with a notice board advertising the Good Easter Egg Hunt, which I find amusing. We take the back roads from there to Berry Green, another 30-minute drive, and despite the Essex countryside, the roads feel oppressive. The grey weather doesn't help, but it's not really that. It's the mud, and the unimaginative architecture of the housing, and the winding, seemingly never-ending roads. I don't know how anyone could navigate from Whittam to Good Easter to Berry Green without knowing the area first. Nowadays, the A120 can take you almost right there, but in the 70s, those little roads would have been your only route. And it's not an easy one to follow, but they did it that night. Josephine Bakshel and this unknown man, maybe a photographer, almost certainly her killer, with whom she sat relaxed while they drank a half pint in the saloon bar of the Fountain Pub and consumed a meal so recent that the component parts were easily identifiable in her stomach. While we do not know the exact time of her death, we can assume that she ate the meal with her killer and was dead that same evening, bound, strangled, and left dumped face down in a shallow pond. This is where I leave Josephine's story, and if you've liked the episode, and you're interested in hearing more about the case, then please head over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast and listen to Paul's account of what followed her murder and theories as to the events of that day. On the next episode, I'll be looking into the 1976 disappearance of a woman from Broken Green in Hertfordshire, and I hope you'll join me for that case. Until then, thank you for listening to the Outlines podcast. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional research by Paul Sutherland. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 